The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right, well, good evening. You know, typically, generally speaking, double dipping is a frowned upon, but this weekend, we're encouraging it. We want to see you guys back in church tomorrow morning for Eric Metaxas. You've got to come. If you've never, you might not be a reader, um, and, and you might not be familiar with his podcasts or his books. Let me just tell you, I've read several of them. I'm a huge fan, and you don't want to miss this. It's going to be a lot of fun. So both services tomorrow, Eric Metaxas, be there or be square. Uh, but we're going to get into the word tonight. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. And by the way, I have to say it, I was so blessed worshiping in the back. That was incredible worship. And uh, the, the, the Tangs, Hope and Charity, have been friends of mine for a long time. In fact, they were in my high school group. Uh, years and years ago, and I found out that they played strings, and we brought them in, and they joined the worship team. Actually, Jimmy and Kayla were also in that team. So you can imagine the kind of worship we had in the high school room back when I was doing the high school ministry. But it was just such a treat for me after all these years to, to run into them again tonight and to have them join our worship team. So blessed. So blessed. Um, But the title of my message for you this evening is hand-picked, hand-picked. It feels good, doesn't it, whenever you get picked for anything. So just as a silly example of this, I received a letter in the mail recently. I get letters like this from my credit card company regularly, where they tell me that I have been pre-selected. I have been hand-picked for an exclusive offer. I have to tell you, I feel pretty humbled, pretty honored to get one of these letters. They want me to know that this credit card is not something they give to just anybody, but because of my stellar credit rating and because they know I'm going to pay on time and because they want to make a whole bunch of money on the interest, they chose me. <laughs> You've probably gotten one of those letters as well. I mean, you probably get flooded with those letters. Come on. And, and why did they write these letters? Well, they write them in such a way that, that they want us to feel special, like we're being picked, that we're being singled out, that we're being drawn into this exclusive club. Why? Because they're smart and they're playing off of this desire that they know is inherent within every human being. We all want to belong. We all want to fit in. And so knowing that, they try to capitalize on it. Let's just say it like this. Few joys in life compare to the feeling of being wanted, included, and chosen. And on the flip side of that, few pains compare to the pain of feeling rejected, excluded, and left out, right? Nobody wants to be the last kid standing against the chain link fence when teams are getting picked. Nobody wants to be that wallflower at the school dance that nobody chose to dance with. We all want to be brought in. We all want to be picked. C.S. Lewis, the great author from uh, 
about 50 or 60 years ago, he wrote a brilliant essay on this subject called The Inner Ring. And in that essay, he talked about this this human desire to want to, to make our way into these inner echelons and inner circles of society within the crowd. And one of the things he said in that essay was this. He said, I believe that in all men's lives, one of the most dominant elements is this desire to be inside what he described as the local ring. And the ring, it takes different forms. It goes by different names and it changes as we get older, but there's always a ring that we're trying to break into. Sometimes it's a social ring and we want to be in the inner crowd. Maybe it's an economic ring and and we want to make this much money and we want to be in that tax bracket. It could be a geographic ring and we want to live in this zip code. Or it could be even a fitness ring. Uh, for a while, I was wearing one of those Apple watches. You guys, anybody have these Apple watches? And anyways, I was wearing one for a while, and they have these rings. And you got to close your rings. And the way that you close your rings is by getting your steps in and being active. And, and my watch was always buzzing and telling me, like, you haven't closed the ring. You're not inside the ring yet. And so there's this desire, this pressure, whether it be cultural or emotional or financial or fitness related, where we want to break into the ring. And then there's also a spiritual ring, isn't there? This is the, the, the most prestigious ring of all, because this is the ring of people that encompasses those whom God has chosen and those whom God accepts. So the question I want to consider with you this evening is this. Who makes it into that ring? Who are the people that God lets into his inner ring? Who does he choose? I mean, think about it like this. If God were picking teams, then who does he pick to be on his team? Perhaps it would be helpful to put yourself in his shoes for a moment, so to speak. If you knew that you had to pick a small team of people by which and through which you hoped to change the world, who would you pick? Now, imagine that you knew that you only had a short amount of time to train these people up. Who would you go with? I know who I'd go with. Give me the the best. Give me the smartest. Give me the brightest. Give me the PhDs. Give me the Navy SEALs. Give me the, 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 the master of divinity crowd. That's who I'm going with. But that's not who Jesus went with. You see, that's exactly the parameters that Jesus was working with. He knew that he had a short window of time to train up a small group of men that he would then entrust with the task of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and changing the world. There was no backup plan. There was no plan B. So we want to know, who did Jesus go with? Who did he pick? And what we see in the Bible is the, the cast of characters that Jesus went with was, was far from who you or I probably would have chosen. There aren't any Pharisees in his group or Sadducees or priests or, or rabbis. The, the people that Jesus went with, they were a different kind of group. I think sometimes the way we, we think about the disciples has been colored by the way they've been talked about over time. I don't know if you've ever visited some of these cathedrals and, and even Catholic churches and Greek Orthodox churches here in America where you see 
The lives of the apostles depicted in stained glass within the church. And, and in those images, if you've ever seen them, the disciples always look very regal. They have kind of these pious looks plastered on their stoic faces. And they've usually got halos hanging above their heads. And in some ways, I think these images that we've seen of the disciples have colored how we've come to view them. We think of them as these larger-than-life figures, these superheroes of the faith. But the truth is, they were incredibly common men. The people that Jesus chose came from rural villages, not the big cities. He chose men who weren't trained theologically. They weren't distinguished in any way. In fact, the guys that Jesus chose for his inner ring were constantly getting in fights with one another. They struggled with pride. They were slow learners. They, the, the, the elevator didn't always make it to the top floor, so to speak. They weren't the sharpest pencils or the most colorful crayons. They, they almost always got it wrong. In fact, one of the most notable or extraordinary things about the 12 guys that Jesus chose to do life with is just how incredibly ordinary they all were. If you look at these men, several of them, as many as seven of them, were fishermen. There were a few tradesmen. There was a zealot. And then Jesus picked a guy named Matthew, who happened to be a tax collector, to come in and be part of his inner ring. Now, of all the guys that Jesus chose to be one of his 12 guys, Without question, the most shocking one of all had to be the selection of Matthew. And tonight, I want to briefly look at his story with you. So if you would, read with me, beginning in verse 9 of Matthew 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." So when we first meet Matthew, and by the way, this is Matthew's own account of his conversion story. This is Matthew's testimony from his own perspective. And when we first meet him, we find him sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, that might not mean much to you, but for those of you who grew up going to church, you already know that the tax collectors in Jesus' day were the bad guys. They were the most hated, vile, disreputable people in that society at that time. And here's why they were so hated. At that time, the Romans collected their taxes through a system known as tax farming. And what they would do is they would assess a figure for a given region, and then they would, um, they would hand that out, or they would sell the right to collect those taxes to the highest bidder. At the end of the year, that person who had bid to collect taxes from that region had to hand over to Rome whatever that assessed figure was, and then they could keep whatever they charged on top of that. 
So tax collectors throughout the ancient Roman Empire became notorious for gouging their own countrymen in an effort to pad their own pockets with these exorbitant tax rates. And now nobody likes paying taxes, but nobody, everybody, nobody wants to pay more than what they're being asked to pay, which is exactly what they were doing. And then in case somebody didn't want to pay up, they had the backing and the support of the entire Roman army, the, the muscle and the might of the Roman government to, to help enforce whatever they were charging. So you can understand now why tax collectors were so hated. But it wasn't all bad. There were some perks to being a tax collector. For one thing, tax collectors were fabulously wealthy. Matthew would have undoubtedly been the richest person in his region. But it's worth noting that those riches, they came at a cost. You see, tax collectors were also, as I mentioned a moment ago, despised and hated and rejected from their own countrymen. They were held in such low esteem that they weren't allowed to serve as a witness in a Jewish court. They were considered worse than a Gentile or even a dog. They were even barred. Listen, this was the worst part of all. They were barred from worshiping in the local synagogues or in the temple in Jerusalem. According to the belief system of the day, there was no hope for someone like Matthew. If you were to look up the words lost cause in the dictionary, you would have seen a picture of Matthew plastered right there next to those words. Suffice it to say, Matthew was the last person that anyone ever would have expected for Jesus to walk up to and to invite into his inner ring. But that's exactly what happened. On this particular day that we just read about, Jesus walks up to none other than Matthew himself. Now, this is the first encounter that we read about with Matthew and Jesus in the Bible. So we have to assume that Matthew, working where he did at the crossroads of trade and commerce in Jerusalem, he would have had his ear to the ground and undoubtedly he would have, he would have heard the, the rumors that were swirling and circulating about Jesus, this miracle-working rabbi from Nazareth. He would have heard about how he taught Unlike the Pharisees of the day, he taught with authority and he taught with grace. It was like every time Jesus taught, heaven came issuing and pouring forth. He would have heard about the miracles that Jesus had performed, the power that Jesus had, how he could cast out demons. And then I wonder if Matthew heard about Jesus' reputation of being a friend of sinners. Now, this surely would have caught his ear, right? I mean. This, this is a holy man, and yet he has developed a reputation for working with and walking in connection to and eating with and fellowshipping with sinners. And Matthew must have thought to himself, it sounds too good to be true. Could he really? I mean, is it possible? Well, he was about to find out because Jesus sees him on this day. And I want to point out that word, that phrase there where it says, he saw a man named Matthew. Perhaps there was a moment where Matthew and Jesus locked eyes with one another. And in that moment, I wonder what Matthew saw in Jesus' eyes. You see, Matthew was used to people not even making eye contact with him. And if they did, it was a certain kind of look that he was used to getting. You have to know that, right? 
I mean, there's that, that, that phrase, that saying that goes, if looks could kill. And I'm sure Matthew was used to receiving, being on the receiving end of those kind of looks. Whenever anyone else saw Matthew, they saw a traitor. They saw an enemy. They saw someone worthy of contempt. They saw a lost cause. They saw a waste. But when Jesus looked at him, you have to believe there was something different in Jesus' eyes. When Matthew locked eyes with Jesus, I believe he saw love. I believe he saw hope. You see, Jesus didn't look at Matthew the same way other people did. When Jesus saw Matthew, he saw someone whom God foreknew and someone whom God had knit together in his mother's womb. When Jesus locked eyes with Matthew, he saw someone that would go on to become a disciple, someone that would preach the gospel, someone that would go on to pen one of four stories of Jesus' life. We only have four records of Jesus' life. And, and Jesus saw Matthew and he goes, this is the kind of guy that could write a story about my life that will get into the hands of billions of people and change their eternal destiny. You see, everyone else saw Matthew and they saw what he had done. Jesus saw what he would do. They saw his past. Jesus saw his future. And you need to know that Jesus looks at you tonight and he sees the exact same thing. You see, one of the takeaways of this story for, for us is that we need to begin to ask God to give us his eyes so that we start to look at the world through the lens of the Father. We need to not judge any man according to the flesh. That's how the Apostle Paul would say it. But we need to ask God to give us his eyes. You see, this world has a certain way of judging people, and they often judge a book by its cover. But what we find in the Gospels is that the ones that others look over, the, other, the ones that others look down upon, the ones that others look past, are oftentimes the very ones that God is looking for. I'm reminded of the words of the father to Samuel the prophet as he was brought before David and his brothers, and he had been tasked with anointing one of them as the future king of Israel. And in that moment, as all these young men are standing before Samuel, the Lord reminded him of this. He said, the Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's 1 Samuel 16, 7. So Jesus saw him. He saw him. He saw him, and he sees you. I don't know what other people see when they see you, what other people have told you, but I know what God sees, and it's very different. He saw him, and then he says to him these two words that changed Matthew's destiny, his life, his everything. He said to him, follow me. Now, that's pretty abrupt, especially if you consider the fact that we have no record of them ever meeting prior to this. This is their first interaction. And Jesus says two words, follow me. Now, I think we need to take just a minute here to unpack what these words mean within the, the framework of the historical context in which Jesus said them. You see, for us, to follow someone is, is a very easy thing. You do it with the click of a button, or you follow someone on your phone, and you can follow them, and you can unfollow them. It's very easy. It's noncommittal. But in Jesus' day, things were different. In that culture, for someone like Jesus in his position, a rabbi, to walk up to a person 
and invite them to follow him. It was a formal invitation into a life of discipleship. Jesus was asking Matthew to become one of his disciples, to enter his inner circle, if you will. So now let's unpack that. What's a disciple? Well, the word in the Greek for disciple is mathetes, and it simply means a learner. So a disciple is someone who comes under the authority of another in order to learn from them. But it's much bigger, it's much broader, and it's much deeper than than that might convey or suggest. We're not just merely talking here about a conference of knowledge, a transference of knowledge from one to the other. It's something that absorbs every aspect of life. In fact, ultimately, the goal of every disciple is to become like their master in every conceivable way. And as a way of of describing this, there was actually a a blessing that people who, who when they saw a a disciple or a prospected disciple following their their rabbi rabbi or their master or their teacher down the the way, they they would confer this blessing on them and they would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And the idea being conveyed there was, may you follow your master so closely that as he walks the dusty roads of Israel and as he kicks up dust from his sandals, may that dust just cover you and may you become just like him. So that's what Jesus is inviting Matthew into. He's inviting him to do life with him in order that he might be with him, learn from him and become like him. That's what discipleship is. It is spending time with Jesus, learning from Jesus, and ultimately becoming like Jesus. It's not a casual invitation. It's not a a class or a program that you attend. It's not a plea to, to boost Jesus' social status or his social media platform. It's an invitation into a radical life of commitment, abandonment, and discipleship. And I think that's something that's maybe missing from our modern understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of the people that would describe themselves as followers of Jesus might more aptly fit under the category of admirers of Jesus. It was a while ago that Time magazine, on the cover story, ran a piece on the most admired people in the history of the world. And I I think it should come as no surprise that the most admired person in history is Jesus Christ. That's who won their poll. And yet when you read the Gospels, you'll never find Jesus asking people to admire him or respect him or like him. Jesus didn't call people to admire him. He called people to follow him. And that's different. Jesus isn't looking for fans. He's not looking for admirers. He's looking for followers. And there's a difference. An admirer is impressed. A follower is devoted. An admirer applauds. A follower surrenders his life. You see, Jesus has a lot of admirers but by contrast, few followers. What about you? Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Another way of asking the same question. And maybe as I ask that, you're thinking, I would love to be brought into that inner ring, but you don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the shame that I carry, the guilt that I hold on to, and the ugliness of my past. 
And those things would disbar me or discredit me or keep me from ever being used or chosen by God. Listen, listen, I don't have to know you to know that you are exactly the kind of person that Jesus would walk up to and issue this very invitation to. And how do I know that? Because he did it with Matthew. And if he chose Matthew, then he would choose you. And that's really one of the biggest takeaways from this story, that Jesus calls sinners like us into his inner circle to become his disciples. He calls outcasts. He calls the messed up. He calls the broken. He calls the lost. He calls the lonely. He calls adulterers and cheaters and prostitutes the messed up. He calls scallywags and ragamuffins and people like you and people like me. Can somebody please say amen? Amen. You know, a while ago, um, I I watched the the Disney live action remake of the film Cinderella. And don't, I, I'm not going to hand in my man card or anything like that. Listen, I watched Cinderella and I actually enjoyed it, okay? I have two daughters and that means a couple of different things. It means I, I'm pretty good at braiding hair. It means I've spent a lot of time playing with dolls. I've painted some nails. It means I know the lyrics to a lot of Taylor Swift songs. And it means I watch movies like Cinderella, okay? So we're watching the Disney live action remake of Cinderella. And and there's this pivotal scene towards the end of the movie where Cinderella is standing in front of this mirror and she's getting ready to go in and face the prince and try on the the legendary glass slipper. Only in this version of the fairy tale classic, the magic is worn off. She no longer looks like a princess. The fancy gown and the makeup and they're all gone. And so as she stands there in her rags, looking in this mirror, she wonders aloud to herself these words. Would who she was really be enough? She had no magic to help her this time. It was perhaps the greatest risk of all to be seen as you truly are. And I'm watching that in my popcorn and I'm thinking, amen, preach. Disney will preach to you if you're listening to it. You need to look at everything through the lens of the gospel. And Disney, in this instance, is preaching. Isn't that how we all feel? Like we come up short. Aren't we constantly fighting this feeling that on the inside, who we really are will never be enough? But then you come to the gospel. And in the gospel, what we learn is that while we're not enough, it's okay because he's more than enough. In the gospel, we learn, we learn that, yes, it's the greatest risk of all to come in and stand before the prince in our rags. But when we do that and expose ourselves, he brings us healing to our soul and he exchanges our rags for his robes of righteousness. We come with our sin. We come with our shame. And he gives us his peace and he gives us his grace. See, if Jesus had gone with the best and the brightest, then it would be easy for people like you and I to disqualify ourselves from following him, but he didn't. He chose ordinary men. He chose fishermen. He chose tax collectors. He chose tradesmen. He chose Matthew. And if he chose them, then that means he'll choose you. He'll choose me. I've always loved this verse from the Apostle Paul. He said this, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, Not many noble are called, 
But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame those things which are mighty. Here's what all of that means. There's no sin. There's no habit. There's no addiction. There's no hang up that would put you outside the circle of those whom Jesus would invite to follow him. I love this list. Consider the following list of people that Jesus used throughout history. Rahab was a prostitute. Noah was a drunk. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob, he was a liar. Leah, she was ugly. I mean, the Bible says it. You can read it. (laughs) Joseph was abused. Moses couldn't speak well. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David had an affair and was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah, he preached naked. What? Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist, he ate bugs. Peter denied Jesus. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. Mary Magdalene was demon possessed. The Samaritan woman was divorced many times. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Abraham was too old. And Lazarus was too dead. And Jesus used every single one of them. And if he chose them, if he used them, then he'll use us. But, 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 but. It all hinges on the response, your response to his invitation. Jesus issues the invitation. Will you follow me into this life of love and joy and hope and peace and adventure? But you must respond. And in the second part of verse 9, we get to see Matthew's response. It says, and Matthew got up and he followed him. I love the simplicity of that statement. He got up and he followed him. Now, we have parallel accounts of this same story. And if you had time, you could flip over to the Gospel of Luke, which is just a couple of books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, to your right in your Bible. And you would see that Luke describes the scene this way. He got up. It's Luke describing Matthew getting up. It says he got up and left everything and followed him. Matthew leaves that little tidbit out that he left everything. But Luke noticed it. Why does Luke point that out? Because Matthew was rich. He was a tax collector. And Luke's like, oh, 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 look at, oh my gosh. But Matthew, he's not seeing things that way. Matthew's not thinking about what he's giving up. In his mind, he had gained everything. Listen, when you decide to follow Jesus, there are some things that you will have to walk away from, things that you will have to turn your back on, things that you will have to leave. It will cost you. The Bible encourages us to count the cost before we decide to follow Jesus. You'll have to leave your sin behind. You may have to walk away from an unhealthy relationship or a business partnership that isn't godly. It might cost you for some friends. It might cost you a promotion. But whatever you give up for following Jesus pales in comparison to what you'll gain. You'll gain a new heart. You'll gain a new hope. You'll gain a new eternal destiny. You'll gain a new eternal family. We all become brothers and sisters. You gain a clean conscience and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, in the truest sense of the word, no one has ever given up anything in order to follow Jesus. Right? Like if you could go back and interview Matthew or 
Mark or Luke or John or any of these guys and you were to ask them, you know, like, tell me about all that you gave up to follow Jesus, they would laugh right in your face. Gave up. Let me tell you about what I gained. I got to see miracles. I got to cast out demons. I got to see people's lives changed. I got to see the blind eyes opened and the lame walk. And those who had been held under a demonic spell set free. Peter would be like, bro, I got to walk on water. You want me to tell you about what I gave up? In fact, you know, the Bible only talks about one person who ever left Jesus' presence in a worse state than when he walked into Jesus' presence. Does that make sense? Only one person left Jesus worse off than when they came to him. And you know who it is? It's the rich young ruler. And says that he came to Jesus with this question, Master, what do I need to do to, to be fulfilled in life? And Jesus said, give it all away and come and follow me. Give him the same invitation that he gave Matthew. And you know what the Bible goes on to say? He left sad that day, for he had great wealth. And we talk about what it costs to follow Jesus, but maybe we should spend a minute talking about what it cost him to not follow Jesus. Because there is also a cost that, that comes with not choosing to follow Jesus. And you can't help but wonder, at the end of that guy's life, as he looked back and he had accrued this, this vast amount of wealth and maybe the vacation house in Maui and all the rest, you can't help but wonder, would he have traded all of that for the opportunity to go back in time and to take Jesus up on his invitation and walk with Jesus through this incredible life filled with the presence and the power of God Almighty in human flesh. Think about what he walked away from. Thankfully, Matthew took Jesus up on his invitation. He got up and he followed him. And really, you want to know what it is to, to be a Christian. That's, that's the whole Christian life. Follow me. And you follow Jesus. Get up and follow him. You just walk with him through life. Our story concludes in verses 10 through 12 with Matthew hosting a dinner party. And you can look at the, the, the roll call of the, the, the list of those who were invited to attend this party, many tax collectors and sinners. Sinners is just kind of a junk drawer term for the, the dregs of human society. And they all came and they ate with Jesus and the disciples. And you can imagine that there was a lot of laughter. There was a lot of, of, of just joy in that house as they're partying together. Now, it's not surprising that Matthew would invite these kinds of people to his house, right? They're the only kinds of people that would hang out with someone like Matthew. What is surprising maybe a little bit is that someone like Jesus would go to that house and party with those people. So why did Jesus do it? I, I think I know why. Jesus wants to give us a glimpse into what kind of kingdom he had come to establish. You see, the Pharisees, they saw what was happening. They were the religious elite of the day. They were the garters of the, the circle, the ring of, of those whom God was supposedly letting in and those whom God was supposedly keeping out. And, and they had a list of what you needed to do in order to get into the ring. And they were always ticked off at Jesus because Jesus was always taking their walls and throwing them down, and he was widening the circle and allowing the most irreputable kinds of people into the circle. They would establish a criteria, and Jesus would say, let's widen the circle. And listen, guys, it's time for you to widen your 
circle. It could be that the kinds of people that you're looking at and casting judgment upon are the very people that God is wanting you to reach out to in love in order that they might be brought in. How wide is God's circle? How big is his inner ring? It's so wide that it encompasses everyone on this planet. The Bible says, whosoever will, let him come and drink of the waters of life freely. That is you, that is me, that is everyone who will, everyone who receives him, everyone who confesses their sins, everyone who repents and and brings Jesus into their heart as their personal Lord and Savior. They are welcomed into the family. That's how wide his circle is. And so Jesus just gives them a crash course on the kind of king he was and the kind of kingdom he had come to establish when he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. You think you're good? You don't think you need help? Then, then great. Then you're welcome to stand on the outside. But, but I'm here for the sick. I'm here for those who know they need help. So what this means is the only prerequisite for making your way into the ring, into the circle, to be handpicked by Jesus, the only prerequisite is that you admit, I don't have it together. I don't have all the answers. I'm sick. I'm needy. I'm lost. I'm broken. And hello, isn't that all of us? You have to take off the mask. You have to stop playing charades. You have to be real with your wounds and your hurts and your guilt and your secret sin. And you have to lay all of that bare before Jesus, who already knows about it anyways. And he'll wash you. He'll cleanse you. He'll forgive you. He'll renew you. He'll welcome you in. This this is what the kingdom is all about. And we are his ambassadors. We are his emissaries. And let's be like Jesus. Let's widen the circle. Let's bring people in. Let's throw parties where Jesus is the central character, where we're talking about him. Let's hang out with people that don't look like us, talk like us, sound like us, do the kinds of things we do in order that we might bring them into the circle, because that's what the kingdom is all about. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity to open your word and share these moments together. I have to believe that you have brought someone here tonight and you've been chasing them for some time. And you know he's chasing you because everywhere you go, you're running into believers. You're running into Jesus. You're running into signposts that are calling you to him. And Jesus is standing before you tonight. And as he looks at you, I want you to look into his eyes. They're eyes that are filled not with condemnation. They're eyes that are not filled with judgment. They're eyes that are filled with grace and mercy. They're eyes that are filled with love. And Jesus is looking at you and he's walking up to you in this moment. I almost feel this. I can sense it. I see it in my spirit. Jesus is walking up to you in this moment. And he's giving you the greatest opportunity in the history of the world. He's saying, would you follow me? You say, I don't know what that means. Neither did Matthew. Matthew had no idea what he was getting into when he took Jesus up on his offer, when he got up from that tax booth and began to follow him. He didn't know what it was going to entail. He didn't know where it was going to lead. He didn't have all of the answers. He didn't have it all figured out. But he took that step of faith. And God met him in that moment. And his life and his future and his forever were changed. And God wants to change your future. He wants to change your past. He wants to change who you are and make you into a son 
or a daughter of the king, but you've got to take the risk. You've got to step into his presence in your rags to be seen as you truly are in order that he might remove the scars, remove the rags, and replace them with his robes of righteousness. If that's the desire of your heart, and you're in here this morning, you say, how do I sign up? What do I do? Is it a class that I take? Is it a a card that I fill out? No, it's not that hard. All you have to do is say, I'm willing. You follow him from this day forward. You receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. That's what it means. You become a disciple in that moment. So if that's the desire of your heart, if you want your past forgiven, if you want your your sins washed white as snow, if you want your name written in the Lamb's book of life, if you want to know that your last breath on earth will be followed by your first breath in heaven, and that when you close your eyes on this planet, you'll open your eyes in the presence of Jesus. If you want all of that, then I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer. And for those of you who are already believers, maybe you're coming back to the Lord. Maybe you're a prodigal son or daughter. My dad talked about this last week. The Lord has been bringing prodigal sons and daughters back into his family for some time. And that could be you. And if that's your heart and this rings true with you, then I'm going to encourage you to say it with us as well. And for all of those of you who are walking with the Lord and following after him, maybe we can just say it as a way of renewing our vows in a way of saying, God, if I had to do it all over again, I would still choose to get up and follow you. So just pray that prayer with me in this moment. Say, dear Jesus, say it out loud. Come on, say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for choosing me, for picking me as an object of your love. Thank you for dying for me on the cross for my sin. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit and the promise of heaven. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.